From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia, setting the stakes and the agenda for Georgia politics. The last three years, we've opened our listener mailbag to your questions. We've received a flood of responses, and today we're hosting a special episode chock full of some of your most pressing queries. This is one of our favorite features of the show, and it's something that I look forward to every single week. And the best part is we don't hear the questions in advance, so they're completely new to us. So stay tuned as we hear directly from our Politically Georgia listeners with the help of our producers, Shaney B. and Natalie Mendenhall. We can't wait to hear what's on your minds. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Guys, I have to say, since we introduced this element a few years ago to the Politically Georgia podcast, this has been one of my favorite features of the program, Patricia, the listener mailbag. And our producer, Shaney B., has had legions of interns pouring over (laughs) every phone call for all these years to develop, really to field the best uh, maybe dozen or so questions that we get to answer on the spot without any advance notice. I, I love, love that. Well, also, we get so many questions during the week that we often can't answer all of the ones that we get, even though so many of them are really well-informed, um, really smart, smart questions. And so I love that we can kind of blow out the mailbag segment today and hear from all of these listeners. And this segment, Greg, you're right, has grown so much. There were there were points during the 2022 election cycle when, do you remember when Fran from New Jersey kept asking us questions? We had people from all <laughs> over the country writing into the listener mailbag, which put, which made Shane's interns work, I mean, pretty much 24 hours a day, I would say, Shane, right? Doubly hard, triply yeah. hard, Shane. I was just, those guys never <laughs> sleep. I just, I just keep putting caffeine pills in the water cooler and... They just never stop. And Tia, it really keeps us on our toes, doesn't it? Especially when we don't know what the questions are going to be. Right. And it is. It's a wonderful way to engage with our listeners, but it's also a wonderful way to make sure we stay up on the different topics of the day and like some of the more kind of in-depth intricacies of politics. So it requires us to do our research sometimes. So I'm ready. Let's get to it. Let's do it, Shaney B. What do we got? Well, you know what? You talked about our our listener in New Jersey. By the way, I miss Fran. I I would love to hear from you again, Fran. we can't wait to hear from you again. Uh, So uh, the closest we could do was New York. Here's John. The interest in Georgia politics spans the universe. Yes. So uh, John in New York uh, has a question about the political futures of some big Republican names in Georgia. What do you think the future holds for the Georgia Republicans, namely uh, Governor Kemp, Brad Raffensperger, and Jeff Duncan? Kemp seems to have political aspirations, and the other two seem like they could definitely be candidates for higher uh, state or federal offices. Thank you. 
great, great question. I mean, we'll start with, with Governor Kemp. Clearly, he has higher ambitions. We don't know if he'll follow them quite yet, but he definitely wants to be in the national mix. He definitely wants to have a role in, in saying who, you know, have a, a role in the mix of the White House race. Uh, he's decided, of course, not to run for president himself, but um, hasn't yet endorsed any candidates. And he could either challenge Senator John Ossoff in 2026 um, or also and or run for president in 2028. When it comes to Brad Raffensperger, you know, you're talking about a candidate with a national profile, with a, a tremendous amount of personal wealth, and someone who you know is can can win over independent voters, swing voters, some of those moderate Democrats by the very fact that he stood up to Donald Trump and refused his demand to overturn the election. And guys, when it comes to Jeff Duncan, um, I'm not really sure. You know, right now he's been doing a lot of work on CNN. He's a vocal critic of Donald Trump. He's outspoken on social media. Um, he definitely has a platform, um, but there are other Georgia Republicans who have who who still have statewide office. It'll be really interesting to see what Jeff Duncan decides to do next because we haven't heard his name being mentioned for U.S. Senate or, or other statewide contests coming up. I think what's so interesting about Jeff Duncan is that he does have this really big platform with CNN and he definitely has a national audience. But for all of the platform that he has, I don't know what constituency he has right now. Um, When you talk about the Georgia Republican Party, Jeff Duncan is one of the few really hard line never Trumpers. And it's hard for the never Trumpers to get much traction statewide here in Georgia. When we look at somebody like Brian Kemp um, and even uh, Brad Raffensperger, we don't hear people saying unfit for office, cannot ever see Donald Trump in that role again. Brian Kemp has said that he would uh, vote for whoever the Republican nominee is. So that's the way of sort of easing your way into and past the question of Trump in a GOP primary and just sort of staying close with that base without being locked in with the base. It does not feel like Jeff Duncan is locked in with the GOP base here in Georgia. And, you know, for his own future political prospects, if he wants to be governor, wants to be senator and wants to run as a Republican, being close with the GOP base is it really is quite essential in order to think about being uh, an elected office an elected office here in the state again. Uh, Look, I mean, one of the things we've been talking about has been not just those three names, but a number of other Republican names, Kelly Leffler, Burt Jones, um, even Tyler Harper, the agriculture commissioner, who could also seek higher office uh, in the not so distant future. Also, we can't forget Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's not the mainstream Republican like the others are. But quite frankly, she's a fundraising machine. We know she knows how to harness the power of social media. And we know among Trump Republicans, among the America First or the MAGA Republicans, however you want to describe them, she's a star. So um, and a lot of people probably don't like hearing that because a lot of people don't agree with her politics or her or her the way she goes about um, conducting herself. But the quite, quite frankly, if she wants to be around, she's got some staying power. Yeah, I think she'll definitely be in the conversation for Donald Trump's running mate, Patricia. 
Yeah, it's important also to know that here in Georgia, it's an open primary system. So Democrats and independents certainly can vote in the GOP primary. And so that's something I think helped boost Brad Raffensperger in his own GOP primary win in 2022, even though Donald Trump had come out so firmly against him. Same with Governor Brian Kemp, just had a humongous win over David Perdue. And we talked to some of the Democrats who crossed the aisle to come over and vote in the GOP primary just for that race in order to make sure that there were not Trump-aligned Republicans um, winning in those contests. It's not enough to win a race. It's not enough for somebody like Jeff Duncan to build a coalition to win the GOP primary, but it can really help a candidate. And so that's the other important twist here in the state of Georgia. Yeah, but one reason they were able to do that is there wasn't really that many contested Democratic primaries in 2022. Stacey Abrams, Raphael Warnock, they were both very powerful name-brand Democrats. So there was more reason for Democrats to be willing to kind of cross over and vote in the Republican primary. There might not be that in 2026. One more name I want to throw out there um, that we haven't heard as much from lately, but is still looming, Herschel Walker, the runner-up, of course, in 2022, lost in the December runoff to uh, to Raphael Warnock, who went back to school. He went to UGA to uh, assumedly, to, apparently, to try to get his his college degree. Um, has kind of remained off social media. Has not really been out there in any public way. But there are still people deep in the Republican Party, Patricia, who still think he could mount a formidable campaign. Well, I mean, he got very close to Raphael Warnock the last time around. That's something I think that we tend to forget, even though Raphael Warnock won. It wasn't a resounding blowout victory on Election Day. It went to a runoff and then it remained a relatively close runoff race. Um, Guys, I think we should also talk about the Democrats, potential Democrats in 2024. I mean, sorry, 2026. Um, Definitely somebody with a big national platform is Congresswoman Lucy McBath, Tia who you cover up there on Capitol Hill. And a name that I keep getting asked about proactively is Fulton County DA Fannie Willis. Now, she has not talked at all about running for any other office, but she has such a huge national platform that she's somebody that people come to me and ask, could she, would she, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. Um, Macbeth has often been floated. I don't know. I think McBath is one of those people that if she runs for higher office, it will be because the people around her have kind of convinced her that it's the right thing and and that they'll help her. I don't think she had, just like she didn't have personal aspirations to run for Congress, it's something that kind of fell in her lap due to her activism. I feel the same way about her as far as running for something else. I don't think she has personal aspirations, but I think if her team and the people around her kind of make the case that she could go for it, I think that um, Fonnie Willis is definitely someone to watch. You know, I um, when she was in Washington for the Washington Post event in November, um, earlier in November, she was so comfortable on the stage, very personable, has an amazing personal story that really she hasn't even had many platforms to share, super relatable, but also this kind of tough prosecutor. 
So I think she is one to watch. Of course, Ossoff and Warnock, they both are national Democratic stars. You know, um, Ossoff's been quiet because he was giving the stage to Warnock, but it's Ossoff's turn starting in tw after the 2024 election. He's going to be very prominent as he runs for another term, knowing that the Republicans are going to try really hard to win his seat. So I think we're going to hear a lot from both Ossoff and Warnock. I expect both of them to probably make the stage at the Democratic National uh, Convention in 2024. So we've got a lot of stars on both sides of the aisle coming from Georgia. We really do. And to go back really quickly to Fannie Willis, who I don't know if she'll end up running for senator, governor, or anything like that in the in the, in the near future, but she could certainly be an attorney general candidate um, for sure. One of the quotes she said at that Washington Post event that Tia just brought up was this. I'm quoting her right here. I'm a prosecutor's prosecutor. I will put you in jail for life and have a real good night's sleep about it. So <laughs> Democrats who are looking for sort of a tough on crime Democratic candidate, uh, you found, you, you found her. You just found her. You found her. Shani B, what else we got? Well, you know who would love to see Fonnie Willis run for president? Donald J. Trump. <laughs> and our next caller, Kate from Aragon, has a question about Trump's candidacy. I would love to hear more about what happens to Trump's campaign or his chance at presidency if he is convicted in Fulton County. Tia, you want to take the first stab at that one? Okay, so if Donald Trump is convicted, then there will be other hearings to determine his sentencing and or punishment. And yes, there is a chance, depending on what charges he's convicted on. So there are a lot of variables, I guess is the short answer. Depending on if he's convicted, what he is convicted of and what the maximum penalties for those charges are would determine, for example, would he do jail time? Would he um, get probation? Would he get fines? Would he get community service? You know, there are so many options. And, you know, at the end of the day, he would be considered a first time offender. So most first time offenders of nonviolent crimes do not serve time in jail. But if the charge is considered serious enough, the judge could think otherwise. So it's really hard to predict at this point because the charges are so wide ranging. The potential punishment, should he be convicted, is so wide ranging. Do you guys agree? Yeah. Patricia? Yes. Yeah, so uh, Donald Trump would not be able to vote for himself if he was convicted of a felony. However, he would be allowed to serve as president. There is no there is no legal reason he would not be able to serve as president after having been convicted. It just it merely affects your ability to vote for yourself, not your availability to serve in the office. Um even from prison, I'm not saying he's going to prison, but there have been all sorts of um, scenarios floated. It, there's nothing that would prevent him from that other than how incredibly wild and crazy that would be. I will say um, this conversation, I think, does 
raise the um, the point that we were making earlier today, Greg, you, Tia, and I, when we were talking to our publisher, Andrew Morse, that Georgia in 2024 really is most likely to end up being the single state that tells the entire story of the 2024 campaign. Because not only is Georgia going to be one of five swing states, five battleground states that we know, both campaigns will be considering must win, especially Republicans have said we cannot win the White House without winning Georgia. So we know Georgia already will be a hugely important state in November of 2024. But you add to that the fact that there is a very good chance that Donald Trump could be on trial for his conduct in the previous election in Georgia. Uh right across the street. So we have, uh, for the way it's all laid out in downtown Atlanta, for people who have not been here, you have the State Farm Arena, where the votes are counted here in Fulton County. That's where part of the charges are stemming from, from 2020. You have the Fulton County Courthouse, about two blocks away, where Donald Trump could potentially be on trial. You have two blocks away from that, the Georgia State Capitol, which is where some of these events unfolded, including the fake elector scheme. And then, of course, you just have the fact that Georgians would be voting all over the state. So it really sets up a situation where the entire question of um, Donald Trump's legal future and political future could be determined in that sort of half square mile. Yeah, I think you're setting up 2024 appropriately. And we had Fannie Willis say the trial could last through late 2024, even earlier 2025. Um, So there's a lot of question marks going. But I know, Kate, to your question, you know, the other big kind of hanging question mark over this trial is what happens if he's convicted in Georgia in terms of, but he's reelected, right? If Donald Trump is reelected, if he is the power of the president, but he's still convicted in Georgia, what powers does he have? Um, Because we know he could potentially try to pardon himself from federal crimes. We know he could try to maybe ask the Justice Department to halt its investigations of him involving some of the the, the ongoing trials in federal jurisdictions. He does not have the same power in Georgia. He might still try to, get the federal justice department to intervene in Georgia. He might still try to find some quirk in the law that will allow him to pardon himself from a state crime. But I said that in national TV the other day and a legal expert basically said, you know, just just, basically to expect Trump to do everything he can if he's elected um, uh, to the white house to interfere and to block the Fulton County trial from going forward. So he's not sort of scotch free. You know, if Fonnie Willis can't do whatever she wants to do if Donald Trump is still in power is what this legal expert was saying. And Greg, there is still kind of just the the overall question, the, the ultimate question, would voters go for somebody who had been convicted of a crime? Is that somebody is that a candidate that that American voters are willing to choose. Here in Georgia, um, we had our latest poll for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution found that 40% of Republicans said that they would not vote for a candidate who had been convicted of a felony, that it really would make an important difference in how they vote. And I think that's uh, that's really the ultimate question. If he's convicted, is it, a, is it a scenario where he could still get elected just based on what that does to a person's reputation? I think so far he's really managed to not just inoculate himself from the political dangers of that. He's almost strengthened himself 
uh, through the politics of being prosecuted. He's just used that to his favor with his base very artfully, you have to say. But uh, it, it, we just don't know until it happens, if it happens, what that really means for his chances of getting elected when people go into a voting booth and say, can I really do this? Shani B., what else we got? Well, on the topic of the Trump investigation, we have a call from Sean in Atlanta who asks about Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones's involvement as an alternate elector in 2020. Just uh, wanting to know if we're going to be updated about the investigation into the Lieutenant Governor for uh, election interference. Thank you. A quick backstory first before we get into that question. Uh, Burt Jones, along with uh, how many other? 15 other uh, electors, Republican electors, voted their, cast their ballots for Donald Trump even after uh, the vote for Joe Biden was authorized and was confirmed and recounted and confirmed again and signed off on by state and and federal elections officials. Um, And so... uh, all 16 of the Trump electors were under investigation as part of Fannie Willis's election interference inquest. And three of them ended up being charged, including the former GOP chair, David Schaefer. Um, but Burt Jones was not charged. Uh, a, and we found out later that a special grand jury vote that was later disclosed showed that uh Many special grand jurors wanted him, you know, recommended that charges be brought against him. But uh, we we also discovered during the trial process that that Fannie Willis had hosted a fundraiser and endorsed Burt Jones's rival, her former colleague, Charlie Bailey. And Judge Robert Bernie basically said that Fannie Willis was disqualified for pursuing charges against Burt Jones, leaving it up to a separate prosecutorial group to investigate Burt Jones. So that that is how we got to this point, Patricia. Yes. And when McBurney made that decision, he said in open court, it, this is just a what were you thinking moment. Fonnie Willis, what were you thinking hosting a fundraiser for Burt Jones' opponent um, or somebody who uh, was very likely to be Burt Jones' opponent? They were all running for the same office. So, um, yes, that is the backstory. The current situation is that uh, the prosecuting attorney's counsel needs to select a prosecutor. And, Greg, I know that you've been checking in with them just about every day. Greg is, I'm like, hey, Greg, what's going on with that? Greg checks in with them just about every day. And I believe you said this week they, there still has been no prosecutor appointed. Is that right? Yeah, no prosecutor has been appointed yet, kind of which stalls the case. But Patricia, you know, we have the lieutenant governor taking shots at Brad Raffensperger. We have him supporting, uh, or at least his allies supporting Republican efforts to ban ballot drop boxes and to impose voting restrictions, um, whether it be allowing more voter challenges of voter registrations. So, you know, this is not an issue that is going away. And in the backdrop of it, we we have the the possibility that our lieutenant governor, the sitting lieutenant governor of Georgia, could still be charged as part of this election interference case. That's exactly right. So it is really kind of wild to see him uh, pushing so soon, um, really 
still three years away from a potential 2026 race. Uh, one of Burt Jones' very first attacks is against Brad Raffensperger and on this topic of election security, election integrity. If you talk to any Republican, their internal polling statewide here in Georgia shows that the question of the security of Georgia elections consistently ranks the number two issue among Republican voters right behind the economy. And so you have this issue that remains a real sore spot for Republicans based um, almost entirely on the 2020 elections and Donald Trump saying that the election was rigged and stolen when it was not. Although we do have some issues, Greg, with the security of the machines here in Georgia, not the security, but the question of could they be hacked? There was a report that said under specific uh, situations of testing, there is a chance that they could be accessed. And so that raised some alarm bells, not just for Burt Jones, but for others. And they went to the Secretary of State, said, we'd like you to do something about this. It hasn't quite happened. And so that's what this is all about. Well, just ahead, we'll listen to more of your questions from the mailbag. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Every morning, delivered to your email, you can get Georgia's must-read newsletter from the AJC Politics team. The new Politically Georgia morning newsletter is your daily jolt of news, insights, and analysis from Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, Adam Van Bremmer, and me, Greg Bluestein, housed under our brand new brand, Politically Georgia. There's no better time to subscribe at AJC.com newsletters. Thank you for being here as we look forward to 2024. Patricia, we are now delving deeper into one of our favorite features of the show, the listener mailbag, where we hear all your questions. We have no idea what's coming and we just pivot and answer as quick as we can. It is. It's like a pop quiz on live radio. And what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> what can possibly go wrong? <laughs> Shani B has that answer for us right now. What could possibly well, you know, go wrong? I, I thought of something that's already gone wrong. We haven't told our listeners how to leave a question for the listener mailbag. And it is a number you can call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even on holidays. My interns are that dedicated. <laughs> the number is 404-526-AJCP. 404-526-2527. Are you impressed I did that with by memory? Yeah, because I, I can't remember that. You know, <laughs> I, I pull it up. You know, okay. it needs to be in your cell phone. In fact, my emergency call, it's not to 911. It's not to my mother. <laughs> to your it's interns. to the Politically Georgia's hotline. Well, All right. Shaney B, I can tell you, my daughter has that in her phone because she, when she's bored, will call up and leave a question with an Australian accent. I think one time years ago, we actually ran one of her questions thinking it was actually a, <laughs> someone from I thought you had, you had gained South international South attention Australia. I was so excited from across the pond yeah. and it was your daughter and uh, and I would like to tell our listeners that not only are your prank calls welcome but they're kind of encouraged <laughs> I'm old school <laughs> okay now you've done it 
Now you've done it. <laughs> now you've done That'll it. be the next special edition of Politically Georgia. <laughs> but uh, back to some serious questions. Now, we opened the show with a caller that was asking about some big Georgia names mm-hmm. for future office. Clay left a message saying there was one name that hasn't been mentioned. Ooh, I know y'all get a lot of questions about who's going to run for what for the governor's rights, especially on the Democratic side. Um, and I just want to know why y'all never mentioned Charlie Bailey. I think he has the broadest appeal. And in the 2022 election, he actually had the closest margin of any of the Democrats who um, ran in that state election. Big fan of the show. Just wondering what y'all's thoughts are on uh, Charlie Bailey. Thanks. Bye-bye. Clay, I think it's a great question. In fact, we asked Charlie Bailey right after the election, sort of, would he ever do it again? Now, this is not a fresh answer, so we would need to go back and ask him. And he said he didn't have any like immediate opposition to running again. So I don't think that we consider him totally off the table. We definitely have seen a lot less action and elbowing on the Democratic side of the aisle this year when it comes to the 26 elections compared to the Republicans. I think that's because it's seen as a prime open opportunity for one of these ambitious Republicans to get in on a race that Governor Kemp won by seven points in 2022. And that was against the Democrats by far their strongest candidate in Stacey Abrams, who raised $130 million. So as all of these Democrats are thinking about what am I going to do next, is raising $130 million part of the equation? I mean, I think that Charlie Bailey did well, but he also trailed quite a bit behind Chris Carr, his um, his target for that race as well. So anybody who didn't come up with a win in 2022 the idea of get them getting in in 2026 certainly is possible. They've just got to make that case to Georgia voters again. What would be different the next time around that they didn't do the last time around? Yeah, I love that question because um, he's not Charlie Bailey is not someone to be kind of counted out, Patricia, as we both know. And look, I've known Charlie Bailey for two decades now. When I was the editor of the Red and Black, I think he was the president of the Young Democrats at University of Georgia. So we've known each other back since when I was covering Brian Kemp's state senate campaign uh, as a Republican uh, challenger to a Democratic incumbent, and he was probably vouching for that Democratic incumbent, uh, Doug Haynes. He ran for attorney general um, in the last election cycle um, back in 20, uh, 2018 and came within a whisker of winning that race and then was going to run for AG all over again until he was compelled to switch races and clear the way for Jen Jordan to run for attorney general. And instead he launched his, his, his battle for Lieutenant governor. Um, so this is someone who party figures have long really respected and talked about as a, as a premier candidate. He's definitely been on the national stage. He's been on the media stage right now. He's an expert, uh, Prosecutor. A lot of times you'll see him on CNN and MSNBC and other uh, cable outlets talking about Georgia law because, Patricia, he served as a as a assistant district attorney with one Fonnie Willis. Can I just do a quick fact check on my own self? I said that he was trailing behind Chris Carr. Of course, that's not right. He was trailing behind Burt Jones. So thank you. Uh, you didn't even bother to correct me. I just heard you say it. I'm like, wait, Sorry. I think I just said the exact wrong thing. You're exactly right. Um, he uh, was trailing behind Burt Jones. But I think this the the result holds true. 
if you didn't win in 22, you've just got to make that case to voters and to donors about why you could win the next time around in 26. And also, Patricia, for those people who, for those candidates who start to kind of rumble about runs, now we've seen Republicans really come out in force, really make aggressive assertive moves. You know, Burt Jones launched an attack ad the other day against Brad Raffensperger. We're seeing Kelly Leffler really travel the state. We're hearing about Chris Carr trying to line up support right now to front governor. Has not quite been as loud on the Democratic side. I know there's maneuvering, but it hasn't been quite as public. But if you're someone in Charlie Bailey's camp or someone of you know who's thinking about running, you've got to start almost making those moves now or really yesterday, unless, you're, unless your name is Stacey Abrams. Well, and that's because these conversations are starting. So even though it feels very early for us to be talking about it, me and you, Craig, it, we're talking about it because they're talking about it. The candidates are talking about it. The donors are talking about it. So all of these um, moves are happening behind the scenes. And so for sure, anybody who is interested in 26, especially since there are no statewide races in Georgia in 2024, other than that White House race, this is these conversations are happening. So we will, if you are considering running statewide, we would love for you to let us know. I do want to add one great quote we got from John Porter the other day. He's a former top aide to, for, to, uh, to Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. He said, don't kid yourself. Infrastructure plans are in the works. Oppo research books are being commissioned. Donors are being courted like five-star recruits. And the inner circle strategy lunches at Blue Ridge Grill have been happening for some time. So that shadow campaign, Patricia, is well, well underway. That's exactly right. So if you're interested, now's the time, people. And remember, don't forget to tell us that you're interested. Now, I will say also for everybody who's talking about it, we have multiple candidates who are not talking about it, especially on the Republican side. And they're telling us they think it is a huge mistake for others to be getting out so early. And they make the case frequently that it's typically the uh, dark horse candidates that end up winning these governor's races, not the people who were the front runners early on. Shannon B., what else we got? From the listener mailbag, we got a call from Debbie in Marietta. She wants to know if Georgia voters will be able to have a say on the abortion issue in our state. Hi, I have a question. How in Georgia can we get the constitutional amendment on the ballot about abortion as just as Ohio did? Is it possible to get this done? Great question, Debbie. Well, in Georgia, um, to force a constitutional amendment, you have to go through the legislature to get two-thirds support from both chambers. Um, and then it has to get passed by a majority and a referendum, a majority of, of Georgia voters. And right now, Republicans control both chambers of the state house, and um, and are, they're not close to that supermajority they need to push their own constitutional amendments through. But Democrats would face a very very tough battle trying to get the uh, a, 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 a anything preserving abortion rights through the state legislature um, on the ballot in through the cap through the state legislature because for one good reason Republicans are very nervous about a. Uh, what they saw in a lot of red states around the nation, in Kansas and Ohio and other states where uh, basically abortion rights supporters have had a winning streak, an unbroken winning streak in a lot of these red states. And Georgia Republicans are not about to see uh, that happen in Georgia. So they will push back vigorously against any Democratic effort to have a constitutional amendment to preserve abortion rights here in Georgia. 
Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think that there, um, the chances of a referendum getting on the ballot, it really wouldn't be able to happen until Democrats had a two-thirds majority in order to uh, get that through the legislature. It would be, I think we would see much sooner if Democrats did take control of the legislature at some point, it would be a lot easier for them to simply pass uh, laws addressing abortion in the way that they want to. But uh, and that is specifically because of what Greg said, the idea of isolating abortion as a single issue on a ballot has proven time and again a really, really potent issue for Democrats, even in very red states like Kansas. And so if you are a Republican lawmaker, you're able right now to put abortion and we're talking about a general election, not a primary election, because in a primary election, it's a very popular issue on the right um, to be um, uh, anti-abortion. But in a general election, you abortion right now is a part of a whole um, constellation of issues like the economy and immigration and uh, school vouchers. So if it were a single issue that would bring out the kind of electorate favoring Democrats, that would make for a really tough election day for Republicans here in the state. Yeah, and Patricia, a few weeks ago, uh, the Georgia Supreme Court gave a victory to supporters of Georgia's anti-abortion law by, a, uh, by, by giving it an initial legal victory. Um, and I, I, Me and you both spent a lot of time talking to Republicans in the aftermath saying, okay, now that you've got this win under your belt, do you now push for more abortion restrictions? And we weren't surprised by the answer. Most, of, most Republicans, even those who say they want to uh, enact an all-out complete total ban on abortion in Georgia, most Republicans we talk to say uh, that they are not ready for that battle. They remember what it looked like in 2019 when in the House, in the Georgia House in particular, it was a very bitter, fraught debate. Um, That abortion, that anti-abortion law passed with one vote to spare in the Georgia House, a little more leeway in the Senate, but it was not an easy vote, especially for a lot of uh, Republicans in more moderate-leaning suburban districts. I saw, you know, friendships fray and tatter. I saw a lot of intra-party fighting too over over that legislation. So Republicans are not eager to revive that debate here in Georgia. No, and I think they don't have the votes to go any um, any more restrictive than it already is here in Georgia. I think they understand that having um, some. Uh, some exceptions and some uh, leeway on the front end is about as restrictive as they're going to be able to get that. They they simply have not increased their margins to the point that they could pass anything more restrictive. In fact, it's been going the opposite way for Republicans. And even when you look at who um, was not supportive of that bill, a number of female Republicans were insistent that some of those exceptions be added into the bill before they would give it their approval. Patricia, I think we have time for one more question before the break. Let's be what do we got. Let's do a quick one here because we recently had some elections in Georgia. Gainesville, the city of Gainesville, Georgia, did not have an election. And a caller who did not leave her name. So I give I give you a name if you don't leave a name. That's so Janie B's platform. Gertrude from Gainesville has <laughs> a thought of why there was no election in Gainesville. Hi, I am calling because I just heard the story about there being no elections in Gainesville and um, some thoughts on why that might be. It may also be because we have fantastic leadership up here and everyone's happy with the job folks are doing. Thanks. 
Well, because we are skeptical, hard-bitten, <laughs> angry, and the heart reporters, we do not give people the benefit of the doubt like that. But no, I think you're. I think you're exactly right. I mean, people may largely actually be happy with their elected leaders. I don't mean to be. La- I'm not laughing at you, caller. I'm laughing at me. I'm laughing at myself. Also, I did speak with the Gainesville mayor, Sam Cuvion, who said that he also felt like um, there were there was reluctance among some people to challenge uh, some of these incumbents um, for, for fear that they might lose themselves. Also, these tend to be at the local level, very low paying jobs, very high stress, high exposure. So you have to really want to do that. And if you're not uh, deeply dissatisfied with the person who's representing you, you're probably not going to go to the trouble. So I think we should certainly allow for the fact that people in Gainesville <laughs> may just actually like their leaders. They might, yeah, they might actually like their other politicians. Well, we got to take a quick break. Still to come, more questions from the listener mailbag. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics quite like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Politically Georgia newsletter every day. And now we have the new Politically Georgia PM Update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on while you're at work. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. All one word, all spelled out. AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. And we are here right now to answer your listener mailbag questions. Patricia, we love, absolutely love getting all the questions from our listeners. And we love being surprised by many of them, too. Yes, it's like a wonderful pop quiz. Didn't you used to love getting mail when you were a kid? Like you would go to the mailbox and there was something in there with your name on it. You're like, oh, my gosh. It's like that same feeling. And you know what? My daughter's going through that right now after her bat mitzvah. Every so often she still gets she gets letters and things like that. And she has to write them. We make her write letters back and not send emails exactly. or texts or anything. That's like just that. good so, parenting. There you go. I'll tell myself that. But Shani B, <laughs> what questions do we got? Well, speaking of good parenting, this is Ooh. my transition. Uh, a question about DA oversight. This comes from <laughs> That was a That's great a perfect segue. transition. Thank you, you very much. Let's hear from Phil. Could Senate Bill 92 be used to remove the Attorney General of Georgia as a prosecuting attorney? Thank you. The answer is that Senate Bill 92 cannot be used to remove the Attorney General because the Attorney General is a constitutional officer of the state of Georgia. And even though the DAs are also constitutional officers, this bill has been written specifically to address locally elected district attorneys through a district attorney oversight commission, not an attorney general oversight commission. That is my understanding of the bill. Having actually read through it a couple of times, Greg, is that your understanding of the bill? Yes. And I will add to that, that there's a lot of confusion about what exactly this DA Oversight Commission can do and cannot do. Well, that's exactly right. 
there are a number of regulation rules that they've put forward, but the Georgia Supreme Court recently issued kind of a warning in an order just saying, hey, we might not have even authority to sign off on these rules and regulations. And that's, Patricia, it's where it could get really interesting because the law clearly requires the Georgia Supreme Court to have the sort of final say over the scope of how this commission can act. And if the Georgia Supreme Court is saying they might not even have that authority, then basically this commission might be put on hold until lawmakers have a chance to go back and rewrite the law to either take Georgia Supreme Court out of it or make other changes that would that would satisfy those concerns. But right now, what we what we kind of see in those in those draft rules that we put forward was basically it'd be a really tall order. It'd be really difficult to for, for any challengers of uh, of Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, anyone who's trying to punish her for indicting Donald Trump and his allies, it'd be really hard for them to use this law. Notwithstanding the fact that Governor Kemp and the House Speaker John Burns have both said, don't use the commission. It's not the, pro- the purpose of this commission is not to go after duly elected prosecutors who went through the proper processes to bring indictments. They're also saying uh, in, in the rules of this, uh, of this commission, it's essentially saying that anything uh, that any, any act that was taken before the commission took effect, which is still yet to take effect formally, uh, is not subject to punishment from the commission. So I know it's a little confusing way of basically saying uh, it'll be really, really difficult to weaponize this commission against Fonnie Willis. Yeah, there is also an ongoing legal challenge to the bill that is coming from four district attorneys in the state, one Republican, three Democrats. The lead Democrat is Sherry Boston, the district district attorney of DeKalb County, who was actually appointed to be solicitor general of DeKalb County by Sonny Perdue. So somebody who is not 100 percent expected um, under those circumstances to be the one challenging this law and actually suing the state over it. But she certainly has decided She wanted to take the lead on it. But I will say, no matter what this commission ends up legally being able to do, it is already serving the function of being the receptacle for public complaints about district attorneys. And that was almost part of the point of this legislation, not only to actually have literal state oversight of these DAs, but also to be able to say back to people's constituents, I know that you're angry about Fonnie Willis. Look, I just filed a complaint against her with the District Attorney Oversight Commission. So it's something that lawmakers are using as a way to be more responsive to their constituents on a DA who serves a completely separate jurisdiction. Um, But it's something that they seem to want to be able to do, whether that's actually constitutional or legal is really a, a completely different conversation. And another note on that, Patricia, is that we actually don't have access to what is filed. It's not like it's an open record. It's not public. Um, these are It's kind of held under seal. Um, and so we don't know how many complaints have been lodged so far before this commission. Um, but we do know, or at least I, we're, we were able to report because I got a hold of one of the complaints against Fannie Willis. So we were able to report that Senate Republican leaders did file a one, one of the first complaints against Fannie Willis, perhaps the first but we don't know if there's dozens, hundreds of other complaints pending or if there's just a handful. Shaney B., what other questions do we have from the listener mailbag? Why, here in the listener mailbag, we have a call from Debbie in Ackworth. And Debbie thinks uh, there should be some steps folks should complete if they want to run for president. Shouldn't there be some requirements of presidential candidates, for example, that they disclose their income tax forms and that they participate in presidential debates, maybe for the um, 
primaries as well as before the final election. Well, these used to all be uh, norms. These used to be sort of traditions and almost gentlemen's agreements that this would be done by presidential candidates, um, Debbie. And so I think it's a great question. We're so used to seeing these things. I think we didn't know that it was optional to participate in debates or for candidates not to release their tax returns because campaigns used to go above and beyond to do this. Um in any way possible to provide that kind of transparency and to almost say, look, look, ta-da, I did it. But with Donald Trump in particular, these are ju- this is just one of several norms that he has been willing to flout. You know, the, the ultimate punishment would be from voters or from the Republican Party to say, you're not going to be able to get these delegates if you don't participate in the debates. But that's just not somewhere that the Republican Party wanted to go. And in 2016, at least, Donald Trump just wasn't punished by voters for not being willing to release his tax returns. Debbie, I love the question. And yes, Patricia said there are conventional norms but there's also what the U.S. Constitution states. And the Constitution says that, that to be president, you have to be a couple things. You've got to be a natural-born citizen of the U.S., you've got to at least 35 years old, and you have to have been a resident of the U.S. for 14 years. Anyone who meets those requirements can declare their candidacy for president. So um, there are the constitutional authorities, right? There's a pretty broad spectrum of people who can who can run for president. And then there's the there's the more you know realistic bounds, right? People who have to raise millions of dollars have to build up their name recognition. As Patricia said, it used to be, uh, you know, a standard that that candidates running for higher office, like president or U.S. senator, you name it, would participate in debates, would be accessible to the public, would you know hold press conferences and answer questions and and talk about where they stand on policy issues. And as we've definitely seen over the last couple of years. Uh, there are candidates in Georgia. <laughs> it's not just a national thing. There are candidates right here in our own backyards that cannot or will not do that. And I'm thinking of a of a particularly tumultuous Senate race <laughs> last year involving Herschel Walker, where that the Republican candidate would not submit to interviews, would not stay where he stands on issues, only participate in one debate, uh, in no forums and no other things with other candidates. And then you look at other candidates, Republican and Democrat, who are even the front runners who are more than willing. You know, Governor Kemp is a good example, who participated in all sorts of debates. Stacey Abrams, others who, um, you know, had, had a clear advantage in their primaries and still participated in debates and forums. Yeah, you know, I think it all comes down to the voters, really. And I think if you look at uh, former Senator David Perdue, when he refused to debate John Ossoff, and that Mm. was in uh, toward the end of that Senate campaign, I think it really damaged David Perdue. So in that case, saying he would not vote, I mean, excuse me, not vote, he would not debate John Ossoff. John Ossoff ended up debating an empty podium and then uh, used that just to great effect for his own campaign. And so I think that that was something that um, really did end up damaging David Perdue. It really does argue for doing those debates if you can, because I think voters really do appreciate it, but they don't always punish you if you don't do it. Yeah, I was one of the moderators of that, of that debate. I'll never forget him using that empty podium in front of millions of viewers to just pummel David Perdue and try to turn it back on him and make him pay for his refusal to participate in the debate. But Patricia, I will add that uh, in last year, in 2022, David Perdue was more than happy to, because he was the challenger, right? He was not the favorite. He was the, he was, you know, by the end, he was the long, long, long shot. And so he was more than happy to meet Governor Kemp wherever and whenever he could, whether it be at the Bates or forums, and even 
even blasted you know Governor Kemp for not participating in more forums against them. But, oh yeah, and do you remember there was that one debate where they got into like a very very heated argument? And so I think those moments and debates really can help them. And then I think probably one of Herschel Walker's best moments in his entire campaign was when he did debate yeah. Raphael Warnock. There were such low expectations for him that when he performed really extremely well. It ended up giving him a real bounce. Now, the rest of the details of that campaign ended up sinking him. But I think that probably was what probably hit the high water mark for him. Yeah, a lot of the analyses, including ours at the Atlanta Journal of Constitution, pretty much said that. It scored points for Herschel Walker's campaign because the expectations were so low. And it really graded on, I'm sure, uh, Raphael Warnock and his allies that Herschel Walker was being applauded for basically, you know, not collapsing on on the debate stage. Well, it's all in the eye of the beholder, but I thought he actually did really well. So, you know, call him like I see him, Greg Bluesting. Exactly, exactly. Well, <laughs> we do this listener mailbag session every Friday. So if you ever have a question you'd like to ask us here on Politically Georgia, you can call that number that Shaney B listed earlier because he and his interns are standing by day and night. Right, Shaney B? What's that number, Greg? I'm putting you on the spot. 404-526-AJCP. I can say it blindfolded now. 404 404- 526-2527 because we cannot wait to hear from you. Shaney B, Patricia Murphy, that is all the time we have for today's show on Politically Georgia. This is your host, Greg Bluestein. We're live right here on WAB every weekday morning at 10 a.m. Or look for Politically Georgia in your favorite podcast app sometime around one every day. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.